The message of that last song is uh, the message of many, many passages of Scripture, but is the message, the truth, in 2 Corinthians 5.21, which we'll turn to in just a couple minutes. I trust, I pray to God that um, I would handle His Word just just well enough to to show you together um, how true that song is in our lives. Um, Clay, thank you for uh, for being here. Thank you for still letting me preach. Uh, thank you for sharing what you did on your summer vacation. And uh, I thought maybe I would introduce my sermon this morning um, by telling you what I did on my summer vacation. Almost nearly as awesome. I got to go to summer camp. (laughs) Josh Lindsay invited me to teach eight times from Monday night to Thursday morning. Not in the cool pines, Not in a rustic chapel, certainly not on the banks of the river in a raft. No, in a gym in the desert, (laughs) preaching to bleachers. Old home week, it was. Our passage that week, Luke 14, 25 through 35, began, begins like this, Jesus talking about what it means to follow him. He said, if anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father, mother, wife, children, brothers, sisters, yes, even hate his own life, he cannot be my disciple. So beginning our time together with 50 teenagers and telling them that Jesus demands that they hate their mother and father. It's kind of interesting. I will let you know that I did have a, an entire session. Uh, what does the Bible say about us honoring our father and mother? Our theme was, it will cost everything. And... Uh, Seven 45-minute messages over those days, plus a one-hour Q&A, plus small group discussions after every message, plus morning devotionals delivered by our young men. It did cost the campers just to be there at least more than they bargained for. Everything. I also had an opportunity along with um, uh, the Parkers and the Bloomquists and Kim and Kaylee. We were invited by Chris Ball to beautiful downtown San Bruno, which actually is it's a very lovely little town right next to the airport. And um, Chris wanted to have uh, us come and lead a Christian living conference. The theme patterned after our theme for men's ministry is complete in Christ. What does it mean that God has called us to maturity spiritually, to perfection, to completeness 
to holiness, to obedience, to sanctification. In my opening message from Colossians 1.27 is that Christ in us is the hope of glory. To live the Christian life, you need to be a Christian. And to live a sanctified life, you need to have a righteousness in your possession that is not your own. That that righteousness is imputed from God to us because it is the very righteousness of Christ. And we're going to look at our verse, 2 Corinthians 5.21, to understand that even more. Justin taught twice, and Kim taught the women twice, and Chris spoke once, and I spoke twice at the conference and preached that morning. Kaylee and, and Gary and Robin and others that were there joined with Tessa and their music team and blessed us after each session, before each session, both with uh, praise to God. And because of the message about what Christ accomplished on the cross for us and the cost that he paid and that the Father paid, that again we'll see in a few moments, knowing this even at summer camp, I don't know, a dozen times, I said, and you know what guys, I don't have time to get into this now. But July 17th, Sunday, 8.30, 10.15, you choose. Bring mom and dad, bring the family. Okay, and listen carefully. Why Christ's call to pay everything is nothing compared to the everything that Jesus paid and the everything that he gives us in return. And so I talk to you now for a moment, students and families. I want very much to explain today a little bit more than I did the first eight times this summer. Ninth time will be the charm, right? That to follow Christ, Jesus says it costs us control, autonomy, and authority over our own lives. It could cost us even precious relationships. It could cost us our possessions. And he asks us, he calls us, he commands us to believe him, to submit to him, to obey him, and to love him, and to freely give him all of our devotion and allegiance as Savior and Lord and Master, and that this new relationship that He calls us to through faith alone, this personal commitment to Him must be above all others, even above relationships that we deem so precious that with our families, more precious even than our own lives. We must be willing to suffer for Him, perhaps even to die for him. Thank you, seniors, for sharing about martyrs 
making your videos, past and present, who gave their lives in following Christ. But we saw that perhaps the most costly and the hardest thing about following Christ is that we must die to ourselves and die to our sin so that we may live for Him as faithful stewards of all the grace and gifts that He pours into our lives. This morning I want you to know, as well as the whole congregation, more and more how much it cost Him, how much it cost the Father to love you, to purchase you, redeem you, to ransom you. How much it cost Him to justify you, to make you holy and acceptable before Him, to pay on your behalf the debt, all of it, that you owe for your sin against a holy God, which is forever hell. I want you to know and never forget and keep on knowing more and more what it costs Him to give you a new life, eternal life, abundant life, a sanctified life, to be entirely and forever forgiven, free from shame, free from guilt, free from the power and penalty of sin, to be at peace with God, cost Christ everything, to never again be His enemy, but to forever be his friend, even his son or daughter, his heir, his bride. And not just in heaven forever, but right now, here. This is what it means to be a follower, a disciple, a believer, a Christian. Turn your Bibles, please, to 2 Corinthians chapter 5. Our destination is verse 21. Begin reading, talking just a little bit at verse 17. This entire chapter is leading up to verse 21. And by verse 17, Paul's in uh, good form, talking about uh, different elements of salvation, of soteriology. In verse 17, very familiar verse, you probably know it as well or better than verse 21. He said, therefore, if anyone is in Christ, in Christ, he is a new creature. Old things passed away, behold, new things have come. Not time to develop this, but Paul is, is rem- reminding the Corinthians and should be stirring up our own minds to understand that he's talking about the doctrine of regeneration, conversion, that in Christ, in the sphere of everything that pertains to and of Christ, this is our, our standing, this is our status, this is our position spiritually. Verse 21 is going to explain how that happened and why it's true 
and real. And that as being a new creature, we have a new covenant. We have new promises. We have a new heart, a new mind, a new master. We have a new mission. Verse 18 through through 20, three verses where five times Paul continues as he's moving on to verse 21. He talks about, he uses the word reconcile or reconciliation. And we understand that that reconciliation, which is the, the bringing together, the making of peace between otherwise separate, otherwise estranged, otherwise hostile, warring parties, where in that relationship you could describe it as not friendly, but as being of enmity, great Bible word, the existence of eneminess and hostility, holy God and sinful man are at war. Students who remember the the second of the parables in Luke chapter 14, that's exactly what Jesus was talking about. Part of counting the cost of what it means to follow Christ is to understand that the king, the king of kings, is at war with you and your kingdom of your own life. And that the cost is, unless you seek the terms of peace, on the strong king's terms, you will lose. There needs to be peace. There needs to be reconciliation between holy, righteous God and sinful, not even, non-righteous, Old Testament and New. No, not even one. And Romans, he keeps going, no, none, no, not even, no, none, righteousness, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. The wages of sin, the penalty is death. The gift of God is reconciliation, peace with God. This reconciliation between holy God and sinful man is the most radical change in status and relationship ever imagined between a perfectly righteous holy God and a depraved sinful no righteousness knowing no righteousness seeking spiritually dead under the curse of sin and death reprobate wretched sinner sin stained God hating hell bound like me and like you before been reconciled to God. Verse 21. How does this happen? He made him, Paul says, who knew no sin, to be sin in our behalf so that we might become the righteousness of God in him. 
neither the word justification nor the word imputation are used. They don't appear in our verse. But both are central to this short, concise, amazing verse. Paul describes in both of these things, justification through imputation, in a way that illustrates gospel concepts, soteriological truth, salvation truth, that he writes so extensively in other places. Romans, Ephesians, Galatians, Colossians, elsewhere. We're going to see a whole bunch more soteriological. I used that twice. I'm done with that word in Hebrews. Already some and some incredible more. But here in this one verse, he clearly explains the actual reality of Christ's substitutionary atonement. My robes for his, his robes for mine. Once for all. One of the things, one of the truths we're going to see in in Hebrews 10, I told the first hour, Clay, I've already circled in my phone I've, I've made my guess when we're going to get there. Brother Hebrews says, listen, for centuries, priests, the high priests, the tabernacle, the, the temple, offered substitutionary sacrifices in the form of bulls and goats and lambs. Not just hundreds, not just thousands, but millions of them. Such that blood flowed like rivers. And had to do it year after year after decade after century until one time, one place, one person, Jesus Christ, the spotless, perfect Lamb of God. 2 Corinthians 5.21 No more offering for sin. Millions of animals, not one sin. Ever removed. One perfect Lamb of God. Every sin of everyone who would ever believe removed as far as the east is from the west forever. How'd that happen? Verse 21. He, God the Father, made Him, Jesus, the God-man, the only begotten, uniquely born Son of God. I think we sang, if we didn't sing before, we'll sing it after, but decreed from, from all eternity this plan of reconciliation, this plan of redemption, this plan of 
justification. God did not justify on a whim or as a reaction or by just blinking like a genie. It was a plan that was as complicated and intricate and as necessary, every bit of it, for a holy God to remain holy and still offer forgiveness, atonement for sinful man, incapable of contributing anything at all to their own salvation, their own righteousness. And it played out over the entirety of the Old Testament and into and through the Gospels. And it's finished. But there's still more to unfold. And you know what? We're finished already and not finished yet. And we have an incredible opportunity. It's why we still have breath. Whether you're the thief on the cross for an hour, or whether you're an aged saint who's known the Lord for 60, 70, 80 years, in eternity's scope, we have a blip of a time to live as righteous ones with the righteousness of Christ on display for God's greatest glory and for our greatest joy and good. That is the why of sanctification. Progressive. Experiential. God the Father made Him Jesus We'll see a few minutes or a few words down. He made him to be sin. Made, common word, to he made him to be something that he wasn't or he hadn't been. He gave him something, he imputed something that he had never experienced before. This common word, now that I know you, you know, we've got all these Greek freaks going on around the church here, eris active indicative, okay? Point in time in the past. The point in time was at the cross. You want to get really specific with that eris? Noon to three, 2 Corinthians 5, 21. God the Father was the action of the verb, made him, Jesus was, receiver of the action of the verb and the indicative mood, the mood of reality. It's really happened. An imputation, the first of two in this verse, took place. Jesus knew no sin before he became or was made. Sin. Gnosko, the word 
for to know, it's a pretty common word there, and it's used in different ways, but it's the word that is also uh, not just normal knowledge of something or someone, but, but is an intimate, can be an intimate knowledge between a man and a wife in a marital relationship. Jesus had no personal, no intimate, no relationship whatsoever with sin. He had never tasted sin. He had never experienced sin. He was born sinless. He was tempted in every way as we are and far beyond, yet no sin whatsoever. 613 commands in the Old Testament law and all sin that was prohibited by the law in the letter and in the spirit of that prohibition, Jesus never. And all righteous obedience required by all the law of God in letter and spirit, Jesus always, without fail, as a baby, as a child, as a young man, as a grown man, But God on the cross made him sin on our behalf. How do you get, where do you get the sin? Raise your hand if you contributed to the sin that was laid on Christ on the cross that needed to be paid in full. Huper is the preposition. Us. For us. On our behalf. The same little preposition that Jesus used when he, he held the bread and said, this bread is my body, which is huper. You. For you. On your behalf. In your stead. As a substitution in your place for your benefit. The same word that Jesus said in John 10 when he said, I'm the good shepherd. The good shepherd gives his life for, who pair, the sheep on behalf of, to the benefit of, in place of, instead of. So Jesus became something that he had never been. And that's why the night before, in the garden when he prayed, and he sweat blood in agony, he knew the cup that he would be drinking from noon to three. Second Corinthians 5.21. Paul continues with the exchange and connects the little word henna. Pastor Miller likes henna. I'm sure, Raymond, you like henna. Okay? Because we all know what henna means, right? It's a purpose statement. So that, here's the purpose. We, all of those who will believe in Jesus might become something that we had never been, something we could never be. 
Jesus became something that he hadn't been so that we might become something that we could never be, and that is the very righteousness of God in him, in the sphere of all things pertaining to Christ, describing our position, our standing, our status before God, so that when God looks at us and thinks of us, which is all the time, he sees not mortal, fleshly, still sinful, weak and failing me. He sees me, reckons me, counts me, treats me as cleansed by the blood of Christ. Sins removed as far as the east is from the west. Possessing, standing in, clothed in the robes of the very righteous perfection, the sanctified holiness of our, own, our only Savior, Jesus Christ, the righteous one. This is what it means to be justified. And unless one is justified and made holy, possessing the very righteousness of Christ, wearing the robes of Christ, one cannot walk, one cannot think, one cannot speak, one cannot do acts of true God-glorifying righteousness. Before I offer a illustration of this I want to just remind us that when Jesus became sin for us and there are many other passages he he paid the price of our sin he endured the wrath and punishment and condemnation of a holy God So what happened to Christ as he bore our sin in his own body on the tree, as Peter said? There's a series of kind of rhetorical questions that, that over the years I've come to ask myself, and if you've heard me lead communion or different things that I've taught, I, I usually ask you to think about these things too. How holy is God? How much does he hate sin? How necessary is it to his holiness that he judge, punish, condemn by his wrath that sin? How much wrath does an omnipotent holy God have towards sin? How much violence? I suppose... It's no less violence that he, you spoke of that he poured out on the earth and the sin. How hot is hell? How dark, how tormenting. How much regret and shame and guilt is there for a sinner under the condemnation of a holy God. What is it like to weep, to sob uncontrollably with your entire body for, say, an hour or a year or ten 
billion years. And how long is forever? Because you see, paying the own price that your sin deserves is impossible to ever pay off. It takes forever and ever without end and you've paid nothing towards the debt you owe. And yet somehow in the great miracle of all miracles I believe in the Bible, God the Father devised a divine way to take all of that wrath and all of that judgment for an eternity's worth for all who would believe and to in three hours, noon to three, when the world was dark, when there were earthquakes, the dead rose and poured it out into a cup for Jesus to drink in full. Silence! For the bigger part of those three hours. And then the first cry. Jesus said, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? A rhetorical question. He knew exactly why he had been forsaken. Raise your hand on your behalf. For you instead of you. And then finally, before he freely gave up his life, he said, it is finished, remains finished. That's justification. That's salvation. There's a little book written by a pastor in Peoria. His name is John Sampson. He's written several books. This is the only one I've ever read. It's 30 pages. On a per-page basis, this is the best book I've ever read. And I've had many people, even in this church, tell me the same thing. Several of you, many of you have it already. We gave it out in at least one membership class and and I think David and Brent used it in a Bible hour class. And uh, I'm going to read something that I read at San Bruno. It's how the message will close this morning before we sing two more songs. And um, there are copies of this, one per family, that I would love for you to take home. They're in the back table. My gift to you. And um, so if you're interested in this uh, illustration, you'll find it here. And uh, you should be interested in everything else uh, in this little book. It's fantastic. Justification is a courtroom word. It's a legal declaration made by a judge, and when it comes to the eternal destiny of our souls, nothing could be more vital than knowing how we can be justified before a holy God. To help 
We explain this, I'd like you to come with me in your imagination after the time of your death. Hebrews 9.27 reads, it's appointed for man to once to die. And after that comes judgment. So see yourself right now on trial, standing in heaven's courtroom before God. You nervously take the stand, knowing that your eternal destination is now being determined. In the case of God the Father against you. Who's there? The prosecuting attorney? Lucifer Satan? The accuser of the brethren? Zechariah 3.1. Your defense attorney is the Lord Jesus Christ. 1 John 2.1. The presiding judge, God the righteous one. Psalm 7.11. And in attendance... 1 Timothy 5, 21, a vast company of elect angels. You stand before God, the righteous judge, faced with a charge of great and terrible acts of high treason in the courtroom of heaven. Gabriel, the high-ranking angel, addresses the court saying, All rise, you can stay seated. The righteous judge is coming into his chamber, and the judge declares his court is now in session and asks for all to be seated. Just because I can. (laughs) Without any delay, Satan stands up and addresses the court. He states that the record will show that you have broken all of the Ten Commandments. On countless occasions, you've lied, you've stolen, you've used God's name in vain, you've hated which Jesus said is his murder of the heart, and you haven't put God first before anything else in your life, just to name a few. And Satan will prove your guilt on all counts. There's indisputable video evidence as well as reliable witnesses to attest to the facts in the case against you. Even your thought life stands as a testimony against you, for the Scripture says, and no creature is hidden from his sight, All are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give account. Hebrews 4, 13. After the case is made against you, there's a hush in the court. The prosecuting attorney has shown that you have indeed committed acts of high treason against God. It seems inevitable that you will be found guilty and convicted. Satan then addresses the judge in his conclusion to his case he says a good god must be a good judge the facts are clear you must find this one guilty your own record in proverbs seventeen fifteen states he who justifies the wicked and he who condemns the righteous are both alike an abomination to the lord for you to acquit this one would mean that you are not Righteous yourself, you must find this one guilty as charged. I rest my case. And the judge then calls on your defense attorney to address the court, the Lord Jesus Christ. Righteous Father, he says, the case made by the prosecution is indeed true. I will not dispute the charges made. However, I will submit to this court two pieces of evidence in the defense of my client. Exhibit A, the passive obedience of Christ. 
Let the record show that on Calvary's cross, the sins of this one were transferred, imputed to me. And I bore the full punishment demanded by your high and holy justice. I was wounded for their transgressions, bruised for her iniquities. The chastisement that brought peace was upon me, and by my stripes he and she was healed, Isaiah 53. Exhibit B, the act of obedience of Christ. Let the record show that I, the second person of the Holy Trinity, became a man, was born a virgin, lived a righteous life on earth, always pleasing you, righteous Father. I lived the life you demanded in your high and holy law. And just as this one's sins were transferred to me on the cross and I suffered the penalty due to him in his place, so also the acts of my righteous life were transferred to her account. 2 Corinthians 5, 21. Righteous Father, if you check the record, you'll see that this man's sins, this woman's sins, have been paid in full. And in fact, the only record concerning this man now is that he lived my life, for my life was imputed to his account legally. And at your good pleasure, it was decreed that this should happen before the foundation of the world. And God the judge says this. Having checked the eternal records and the validity of exhibits A and B, the case made by the defense is both true and satisfactory. In this court, for the purpose of dismissing all charges made against this man, would the accused please stand? In that my son has borne your punishment in full, and has imputed his righteous life to your account, I declare you not guilty. But more than that, I declare you righteous in the splendid righteousness of my Son. And I can do this because my wrath due to you was borne by my Son. He has paid for your sins in full. You are justified in my sight. Forever I am at Peace with you. Your sins I will remember no more by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. Amen. Our sins have been forgiven. Christ's righteousness is ours. We've been justified. By faith. And justified means not merely just as I've never sinned, but even more glorious, just as if I'd always obeyed. 2 Corinthians 5. Look there one more time. Verse 20. Therefore, we are ambassadors, representatives for Christ of this gospel, of this reconciliation, of this peace. As though God were making an appeal through us, and He is, so we beg you on behalf of Christ be reconciled 
to God? Do you know for sure more than you know anything else in life that you have peace with God through your Lord Jesus Christ. Repent and believe and come follow me, Jesus said. And it will be not only an eternity's precious perfect life but tonight tomorrow every day as we walk together let's pray father thank you jesus thank you for your robes of righteousness for your obedient sacrifice, suffering on our behalf. We are forever indebted to you. And we pay no price. There is no merit. We just bow before you and we confess with our mouth that Jesus is Lord and we bow before you in humble, obedient submission. Thank you, Lord Jesus, for such great salvation. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.